All right. Welcome, everybody, in, in your Bible or phone or whatever it is, uh, 2 Samuel uh, 11 and 12. If you could turn there, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And there's a handout, uh, handout uh, being, being passed out. That, that ought to be helpful. And I'll tell you, do you mind if I have your handout? Thank you. I gave mine away. Uh, so all this handout means is that we'll probably go over some of this. So, uh, you know, it, it's meant to be more helpful than anything else. And maybe we'll go over all of it. I don't know. Uh, we'll be in 2 Samuel uh, 11 and 12. And would like for us to t- tonight uh, think about what God uh, does with families, uh, sometimes marriages, sometimes individuals who have been kicked to the curb. And some people get kicked to the curb long before they get married, long when, before they have families. Some people uh, feel like they've been kicked to the curb where they work. Uh, some people experience that in a family. And uh, the good news in all of that, and this is throughout the Bible, uh, God uh, is still at work. God often really goes to work uh, when uh, people just look absolutely defeated and maybe feel defeated. So uh, we'll look at some of that and especially look at the little story of, of uh, David and Bathsheba uh, for a few minutes. Do that. Uh, before I forget, uh, uh, in the last, I think the last uh, week and a half or so, I've written a piece on uh, uh, worry and anxiety, did a video uh, on anxiety today, and you might find that helpful, and it's at Facebook, and if, you, if, if you'll just uh, put search for my name, and that's Jim Martin, uh, yes, I'll be your friend and uh, just but you might find some of that helpful. OK. And one of the nice things about that is you can read or watch this very brief video in the privacy of your home. And I never know it. And so it's kind of like you can peek and look and just and nobody ever knows it. And some of us do that all the time. Um, well, I. Uh, happened to be looking at Facebook this morning and came across this odd little video and I kept seeing it uh, here and there posted by various people and I could tell there was a fire in the background but I didn't watch it yet and so finally I decided well I'm going to watch this thing and it was uh, the, the, a story from Dallas yesterday morning of my school being burned and I, I grew up going to what became Dallas Christian School. It was located in Southeast Dallas. I can remember kind of like uh, Harding Academy, I, I, I think. I can remember my mama and daddy selling everything imaginable, trying to raise enough money, like a lot of mamas and daddies, to help get that thing off the ground. And this was the first building where Dallas Christian was. And so I turned this video video on and here's this fire and here is this heavy machinery and it's knocking down what remains of the first grade classroom. 
But the, it, the, the building was finished when I was in the second grade. I went there from the second grade through, through 12th. And so every room has memories. And I have a feeling, the video ended, but I have a feeling that they were going to knock down our second grade class where Mrs. Smothers taught. Second grade class was uh, a couple of things I remember about it. There was a girl named Pamela who drooled and she sat uh, for a time in front of me. And I knew she was nice, but she didn't run like the rest of us. And she fell a lot and she would sit at her desk and the drool would come down. And every once in a while, a girl would pat her lips with a Kleenex, Pamela. There was a girl sitting always, Betty would sit near the back of the class. Now I went to school with most of these people. Again, I would, I suspect it was like that with the academy for some of you. I went to school with a lot of these people all, you know, all my growing up life. There was Betty, she always had holes in her sweaters. And she had this green one that she wore when it was real cold and when it was not as cold, I think that's what she had to keep warm with. And there was a hole in it and Betty was there. And as I got older, it seemed like, it just seemed like some people were more important than others. You know, not that anybody meant to do anybody any harm, but it just felt that way. And I remember years later thinking, you know, some people are kind of like this. If you ask me for a piece of paper, I'm going to hand you this, not this, but both are pieces of paper. If, I, if you ask me for a piece of paper, I'll hand you this. Uh, I might ask you if you need a pen because there is, there's, anytime you see a blank piece of paper, there's some kind of potential there if you're about to use it. You may, uh, you may be, Maybe you're ready to take notes. I may think you're going to take notes in the class and you say, no, I wanted to write down this recipe. Uh, there's potential. Maybe I think you want to take notes in the class and you say, no, I want to draw when I'm bored and you're doing all this. Things can happen on a piece of paper like this. When does something become like this? When I'm ready to what? Throw it away. There are people, and you know this, there are people who, who, who kind of go through places in life where they feel like this has happened. That, and sometimes they feel like uh, they've participated in this. Sometimes they think, I've, I've had conversations where the things my daddy called me, the names he called me, I felt like I just didn't amount to much. Got a friend of mine, he said one day he was telling this little guy. And the little guy was visiting the church where my friend preached. And he said, well, who are you? He told him, his, I don't know, his first name was Jack or something, but I'm, I'm Jack. Well, Jack who? And the little guy just looked at him. He said, where, who are you with? And who brought you here? He said, finally, that little boy just looked at him. He said, Mr. I'm nobody's nothing. I'm nobody's nothing. And I think somebody had brought him from the neighborhood. That uh, w when you get 
kicked around a bit, you, you almost feel like nobody's nothing. And I, I can tell you stories of uh, children who have felt this way, of older people I've visited with in nursing homes who feel this way, of wives who stood in front of people and got married and three or four years later felt like this, husbands who have felt like this, and our Bible has people who are like this. And what is wonderful, and, and I love, love uh, Freddie's language in his prayer, he talked about our story. What is wonderful about our story is that even when human beings begin to look like this, this God of the Bible has not given up. Even when you look around and you think, man, there's some kind of pecking order. Uh, this God of the Bible hasn't given up, whether you're at the top of the, you feel like you're at the top of the heap or the bottom. So what we'll do for a moment is look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, then we'll go to a passage in the New Testament. Uh, and this is going to be a familiar story in some ways, I think. Uh, and I want to read just pieces of this and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at our notes for a minute. Uh, in, the, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up and walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman is very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And there's this piece of the story about Uriah the Hittite. Um, The more I read this, and I've read it and read it and read it like you, and I've heard a lot of sermons preached about it, and I've preached a few about this, it's a pretty sad story. I, I, I've heard preachers talk about this as if this were some sort of affair, that you got this woman on the roof, she shouldn't have been on the roof, here she is, uh, not wearing much, and she's bathing, and goodness, and right out there in the open, and King David sees her and they got this. Now they're having this affair while her husband's off in war. And so we kind of paint these pictures of this seductive looking, beautiful woman and uh, ain't it awful what she did and he couldn't help himself and all that. And as I read this, uh, it, it's not exactly that way. It is, it is this, just this story of David, for whatever reason, remaining behind while others go off to war, even though he's the king. And David gets up from his bed. He walks around on the roof. He sees this woman bathing. 
the woman was beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. David sent. Notice uh, all these these uh, subject and verbs. It's all about the action of David, what David did. David got up, David walked, David saw, David sent. And then he learns that she's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, according to the messenger. David sent messengers to get her and he came to him. He slept with her. And then she goes back home. And I don't know what you say to the king, especially in that day. I don't know what you say to the king when he summons you. And she comes and then she goes back home. And then we the next thing you, you, you see is after all of these uh, subject verb, David did this, David did that, David did this, David did that. Then in verse uh, five, the woman conceived. And this time the subject is this woman, Bathsheba. She sent word to David. I'm pregnant. Well, look in your notes if you would. We've come a long way here since the seventh chapter. Uh, if there's a high point in Second Samuel, it's probably this chapter seven, where there is the the the, the great promises made today. Look for a moment at seven. Uh, not only the promise uh, verse. Uh, 11, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when the days are over and you will rest your, uh, with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then this beautiful prayer beginning with verse 18, this is still chapter seven. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? Now, what I'd love to do is tell the story of David and leave out all that mess in 11 and 12. <clears throat> I'd love to tell the story of David and how David uh, received this promise of God and David responded so humbly and David wrote all of these beautiful Psalms and there he is, this exemplar of morality and what it means to be a man of God. And yet his life is a lot more complex than that. By the time we get to 11, you just want to go, man, what are you thinking? What are you thinking sending for some attractive woman you see and having her summoning, summoning her? and then sleeping with her and sending her home. Look at your notes, if you would. In some ways, this is a picture of David and disposable people. The first one, the encounter with uh, Bathsheba, is where he basically treats her as an object. 
What David knows is that she's attractive and he has desire. He knows those two things. And he knows he's got power. And he sins and he takes and he sends her home. As one young woman told me one time, she said, you know, I made a mistake and that guy left me feeling like a used Kleenex. Just toss me. And here's David who, I mean, just the other, man, I think it was, uh, was it last week I preached at Millington from Psalm 3. Here I am preaching one of his beautiful psalms. And then I just want to strangle him here. And it's the same guy. Well, he then uh, learns that she's pregnant. And you know the story. What, what's the first thing that he thinks learning she's pregnant? Got to cover this up. Got to cover this up. It's kind of like what we do when we're doing something, looking at something uh, that we, we, you know, what do we do? We go, I'm looking both ways. Who's seeing me? Who's watching me? Well, I, I need to cover this up. So what does he do? He sends for her husband coming back, come back home, come back from the battlefield and says, I want you to go to your house. Uh, uses a euphemism here. Uh, scholars think this is a euphemism. Uh, washing your feet, probably referring to having sex with his wife. I want you to go, go to your house, be with your wife. Uriah won't do it. And why won't Uriah do it? Yeah. What do you think about that? A better man than David. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a part of this, you know, I just, you just want to, it's just irritating. You think, man, so what are you, who is this Uriah guy? We know who David is. Man, after God's own heart, who is this Uriah guy? And yet, your notes, Uriah is his obstacle. Uriah, disposable people. On the one hand, Uriah's wife was David's object. Second, Uriah was David's obstacle. I got to get this guy to go home. He won't do it. He's a man of honor. And it's this weird picture here of David with his immoral indulgence and Uriah with some sense of moral restraint. What a twist. Y'all, none of you ever said this, of course, but you, you ever dealt with somebody in the church that was just as, uh, just not a good person. I was going to say sorry as all get out, but I won't say that. Just, just not a good person. And then you meet somebody out in the world and this guy is just, a, or a woman is just a gracious and honorable. And you think, what's this all about? The baptized guy can't even trust him and my neighbor who, so you kind of got this weird twist here. D 
David basically has, what does he do to Uriah? What, what, what does he do with Uriah? Maybe that's a better question. What does he do? Set him up. Set him up to, yeah. to die. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when, when we make, uh, when, when we sin and we don't want to be found out and somebody's our obstacle, sometimes we'll do anything. I, I can't tell you uh, the, um, well, I don't, I don't know how many it is, but through the years, I've talked with a number of people who have uh, made some pretty bad choices and to think of a mate's death is not uncommon. I just wish my husband would die and this would be, this would all go away. I just wish my wife would die and this would all go away. Well, Uriah dying is not going to fix this, is it? Not going to make it better. I think we know that. Let's talk for a moment about disposable people. When does that happen? You, have you seen, you've seen instances where you saw somebody being treated as disposable? We got one person who saw it one time here. Has anybody ever seen any, any human being being treated as if they were disposable? Yeah. You ever seen that in, in, a, in a business when somebody's treated as disposable? Charlotte reminded me uh, last night of a time, uh, she could recall a time when uh, a person went to a city official with some ideas and then shared that with this city official in the, in the town where we were living. And then it came out in the newspaper a few days later, this, this official now has some great ideas he would like to, for the city to be thinking about. And of course, never mentioning the person that was the source of those ideas. This person was disposable. What mattered was that I used this person to advance my own agenda. Look at your notes, if you would, for a moment. Sometimes people in power take advantage of one another. We heard anything uh, uh, about that with the Catholic Church lately? I'm thinking of Pennsylvania, the report released a few weeks ago, or among evangelical groups. There's stories in Churches of Christ to the same thing. Yeah. Who has power in, in, this, in this culture? David, what was David's power to be used for, by the way? He, he had a lot of power. What was it to be used for? For good? For leading the people of God, right? What was he using his power for in this story? Establishing his, the kingdom? What was he using his power for in this story? His, his himself and his own self-interest. So who has power in, in, in just everyday life? Who's got power? Wealthy. Well, sometimes the wealthy have power. If you're working, if you, CEO. what now? CEO. A CEO might have power or just depends on kind of where you are in the food chain, but it may be uh, maybe some manager uh, what now? A, a coach. What else? Teacher. 
a teacher, excuse me, Mary, a te teachers can have special, you know, dealing with their own children. Yeah. What else? Yeah. There's a, I go to a physician. There's a, in that context, there's a certain amount of power he has with me. If I'm with a, an attorney that I'm using, there's a certain amount of power there. If I'm sitting down with a counselor or a therapist, there's a certain amount of power there. That power in and of itself, is that bad or good? Uh, sometimes it just goes with, it's just a part of the way, way you function, the way, you know, it's the way you make things happen, but can that be abused? All we have to do is, I was going to say, open up the commercial appeal, I guess, get online and look at the commercial appeal or whatever we do with that. Uh, yes, there's just story after story after story of people abusing power. And when people abuse power, and it doesn't, you say, well, I don't have any power. Yeah, you know, if somebody said, Co if you're a school teacher and you got little kids, you got some power. Okay, the majority. Someone uh, with disposable people, somebody preys upon another's weaknesses, hurt or disadvantage. Okay. I, I was, uh, Charlotte and I were with a church for 20 years. I preached at a church for 20 years. I, I talked with a lot of people about their aches and pains and marriages and mess. I, I can tell you where a lot of those people are vulnerable. Now, is there anything wrong with knowing that people are vulnerable in certain, certain areas? Of course not. The problem is when you, you, Forget that you've been put in this place to help people and you use that to hurt somebody. Right. Look at the number three. Someone pursues and then disposes of another after using this person. Somebody works for you. They're talking to another company. They've got no interest in going with that company. They're trying to get a raise out of you. And they want you to think they're about to bolt. Oh, they're just using you. I'm talking about a situation where it's not sincere. Okay. I'm not talking about sincerely looking at another place, but where it's just, it's just a form of, of manipulation. Look at the number four. Someone disposes of another because they are perceived to be an obstacle. Now who could, who could be an obstacle in this culture? Who could be an obstacle? Somebody that stands in the way of what? Getting what you want. Somebody that stands in the way of this deal going through. Somebody that stands in the way of you making a dollar. Somebody that stands in the way of, I mean, the silliest. Somebody that stands in the way of your child becoming a cheerleader. Unbelievable what people have done for the kids. Uh, you know, uh, threats being made against coaches and just, just ridiculous. But all of that, uh, where, where I'm trying to get my way, look at number, uh, num number six, someone disposes of another under the guise of being gracious. This remind you of David and Uriah. Come on home, go, go home to your wife. Does he care about their marriage? I don't think so. When this person is actually has a self-serving agenda, right? 
People can be very nice, but that's when our kids would come home and say, I think he's a nice person. Well, I'm, I'm a little more concerned of whether or not he's a good person. Evil people can be nice. I mean, you know, they can smile and grin at you while they're thinking about what, how they're going to undermine you. So, um, how does all this happen? How, how do you go from being in a church every Sunday and doing the right thing and being a David, and reading the Psalms, even writing a Psalm? How do you go from doing that to just making bad choices and decisions and, and, and even disposing of people? How, do you, how, do you, how does that happen, do you suppose? Forgetting God. Forgetting God? Yeah. You forget who you are. Forget who you are. You are. Whose you are. I'm sorry, Marty, I couldn't find you. Forget whose you are and who you are. Who you are. How does it how does things like Bo? Satan. Satan, okay. These are all good. Somebody else? Do you know of anybody, I don't, maybe this happens, I don't know, but do you know of anybody who wakes up in the morning and, and says, you know, it's Thursday. I think I'll make a decision that's going to destroy my life. Nobody does. I, mean, who, I don't know people who do that. We, we, we don't usually think in those terms. How do we, how do we make those decisions like that? Little by little, little by little. Yeah. Charlotte was, last night, she was uh, looking at a book uh, by Eugene Peterson. It was on this text. And she read something really interesting. She, uh, basically, what Eugene Peterson, translator of the message, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, what he said was, and I thought this was very insightful. He said, when, when you're sinning, you don't feel like a sinner. <coughs> When you're when you're doing something that's that's wrong, you're not thinking I'm doing something that's wrong. What he said was, and I think he's on to something, he said, when you're doing wrong. When you're in the act of doing wrong, there's a part of you that says this is what I was meant for. This is what I need to be doing. I have never been happier. This is great. I can't believe I would ever say no to this. I deserve this. After all I've been through, after all my whoever has put me through, when you're in the middle of it, you don't feel evil. You may even feel like you're pretty alive. Walk with me here. When a person disobeys God, are they guilty? Or, or maybe I should say we. Are we guilty? When, when I disobey God, am I guilty? Yes. When I'm guilty, I've disobeyed God. When I am guilty, am I always going to feel guilty? Now, see, that's, that's an interesting one. When my conscience is tender and fresh, Oh, my goodness. I, man, I can remember doing things, Jay, and I just think, I remember going downtown when I was in uh, high school on the bus 
walking in some drugstore, looking at some magazine, and I'm thinking, I know Jesus is coming tonight. <laughs> and I, was, I felt awful, 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 awful. I thought, I cannot not see those images anymore. What am I going to do? I am. Now, on the other hand, you can say no to God so much and so often. The, the, the phrase, the hardness of, of heart, you know. You say, how could how could a brother leave a, a, a church like Highland and treat his wife like dirt? It's because he's done it so long and said no to God so long in that area of his life. Doesn't feel anything anymore. And he hit it. He was talking to a friend of mine. He's an attorney in Fort Worth, was a part of the Alta Mesa Church at that time. And for, year, uh, for years, he was living uh, a double life. And I asked him, I said, man, how did you do that? How do you hear these sermons and sing these hymns and be in a church every Sunday? And he said, I felt nothing. He said, Jim, my heart was hard. I was just putting in the time with my wife and going home. I felt nothing. That's a dangerous place to be, you know. Look at Matthew 1, then we're going to wrap up. Matthew 1. When you've been kicked to the curb and you kind of feel like this, and it seems like everybody else is going on with their life, and their kids and their marriages and their families. And here you are feeling like this and you just kind of wonder, where is God in all this? Matthew chapter one, this genealogy of Jesus. It's interesting. There are four women mentioned here. Verse three, Tamar. Uh, verse five, Rahab. Uh, verse five, Ruth, and then uh, verse six, David's, uh, I'm sorry, Solomon's mother. All these are Gentile women. Um, David was the father of Solomon. And listen to how this, this is expressed. Whose mother has been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. I'm going to tell you, everybody else can kick her to the curb and send her back home and kill her husband. But God does not forget who she is. And right smack dab in the middle, Freddie, of our story, here is God announcing that in Christ, he is using this one who came from David and Bathsheba. And I think that's really, you know, this is the takeaway here. As, as we walk away and we talk to people at times who feel like, you know, I've made too many mistakes. I've been hurt so much. I'm too wounded and all of that. To remind folks, you know, it probably seems like the world has moved on and gone on. God does not forget people who have been tossed aside and he he works through he works through us.
That's good news for us. Okay. Well, that's enough of that. Y'all been helpful tonight. Thank you so much.